Our sermon today will be taken from John 11, verses 1 to 16. This is the word of God. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are these not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of his world, this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Friends, keep your Bibles in John chapter 11. We're going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of John today. And this is a uh, momentous text. It's a very famous text. This whole chapter hangs together as a singular story. And it's a story that hinges upon this particular miracle that you may have heard about. It's about the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. It's a story whether or not you're a Christian or non-Christian. You've probably heard about it. Jesus is going to heal Lazarus, not merely from illness, but from death. And he's going to be risen up and it's going to indicate the glory of the Son of God. Um, before we get into the text, however, let's open us up again in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this privilege. Let it be our longing today, Lord God, to be able to say that when you return, it would be well with our souls. That in the twinkling of an eye, our, our lives may end. Everything we stood for may come to naught. And yet, because you have returned, because we are with you, Lord God, because you are with us, we can say, Lord God, with a clean conscience, with glad and joyful hearts, it is well with our soul. And we cannot wait, Lord God, for you to return. Help us now behold your glory. Help us now, Lord God, go through this text with a sense of your presence and with a sense, Lord God, that you want us to behold your glory. Pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So again, this is an important text, friends, in the Gospel of John, and we have gone through right now um, the end of a bunch of debates between Jesus and the Jews and Jesus and the Pharisees in the Gospel of John. And to chapter 8 to chapter 10, there's an escalating tension. There's a tension between Jesus and the Pharisees, and the Pharisees have developed from subtly attacking Jesus to openly wanting to kill him, so much so that by the end of chapter 10, Jesus, as we've seen, has left Judea 
has left that area because they know, he knows that the Pharisees and the Jews are trying to kill him, and the disciples too are afraid to go back because they're trying to kill him. And friends, this chapter, we transition into um, this miracle story. It's one, again, one chapter that hangs together. But interestingly enough, despite the um, miraculousness, the, the greatness of this miracle, the, the, the famousness of this miracle, it doesn't happen until 40 verses in, right? And with this whole chapter, a story about a singular miracle, a miracle that you've probably heard about, it doesn't happen until about 40 verses in. For 40 verses, we're going to get merely the background behind this miracle. And in fact, it is the background behind this miracle that makes this miracle so absolutely stunning. This background locates the context of this miracle. And without this background, this miracle would just be um, something amazing, something incredible, but perhaps we would miss its true and real significance. So these 40 verses, these uh, conversations that Jesus would have with the disciples, the conversations that Jesus would have with two grieving sisters of Lazarus, Martha verse, and then um, and, um, after Martha would be Mary, two grieving sisters, same situation, but different responses by Jesus. Um, these are the important things that we need to pay attention to because Jesus is raising Lazarus up to teach these people around him something about his glory, something about what he can do. So um, we better pay attention. Verses 1 to 16, our text today, forms the backdrop. It's a conversation between Jesus and the disciples before Jesus even ends up in Judea, before Jesus ends up in Lazarus' home to heal him. So um, don't miss the background. Don't miss the setting. Keep our eyes on the text as we're going to follow through. And friends, this is a hard text to teach. This is a hard text to preach because there is something in this text. If you see this, if you see what this text teaches you, if you really get the significance of what it's teaching you, it distinguishes true Christians from non-Christians. It distinguishes true spiritual faith from non-spiritual faith. It distinguishes, in other words, uh, plain religiosity from the faith of the gospel indwelled us by the Spirit and caused by the Spirit in us. So the three points for today's sermon. First, we're going to talk about the doubt that Jesus is going to address Second, we're going to talk about the love that Jesus shows here. And third, we're going to talk about the one who departs. So the doubt that Jesus will address, the love that he's going to show, and the one that will depart. And this will become clearer as the text proceeds. So first then, the doubt that Jesus is wanting to address. So this text and everything that happens in this story hinges upon chapter 11, verse 4. This is the interpretive key to the rest of this chapter. And it's going to be repeated again later, right before Jesus resurrects Lazarus. Look at what Jesus says to his disciples after he heard the news. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is the interpretive key for the rest of the chapter. This illness does not lead to death which, again, is ironic because we know Lazarus will die. It is instead, in the contrast, for the glory of God, so that the Son of God, again, he's identifying himself with God, may be glorified through it. And this is a parallel to what we've seen about five weeks ago in John chapter 9. If you remember the story in John chapter 9, five weeks ago, Jesus passed by a blind man, right? And when Jesus passed by the blind man, uh, a, a man born blind from birth, right? 
the disciples start speculating. Jesus, Rabbi, why did this man, um, why was this man born this way? Was it because he sinned? Or was it because his parents sinned? In other words, they started to speculate upon the causes of this particular tragedy, the causes of this man's blindness. They wanted to locate it in a particular sin so that maybe they could justify God, let God off the hook, right? And they started speculating in self-righteousness, thinking, oh, we must have our lives put together because we weren't born blind. And this blind man, he must have done something terrible for him to be born in this way. And if you remember from five weeks ago, we saw that Jesus rebuked the disciples, Jesus rebuked the disciples by telling them what? Don't focus on the causes, right? It is not because of sin, nor of his parents' sin, that this man was born blind, but rather think that this is for the glory of God. So don't focus on the causes, which causes us to curve in on ourselves, to speculate, right? To let us grow in self-righteousness or self-pity, but rather focus instead on the purpose for which this suffering is ordained. What is God doing, in other words? How will this suffering, in this particular instance of a tragic blindness, how would this now indicate and show and manifest the glory of God? And so we saw five weeks ago that God ordains suffering, ordains particular uh, falls and sorrows, so that He might show us more and more His glory. And it doesn't eradicate the pain of the suffering. It doesn't eradicate the sorrow of the suffering. It doesn't eradicate the tragedy that is suffering. But it does mean that God intends to bring about the opposite of evil when He ordains evil. Evil only ends up, in other words, serving the very opposite purposes of its intention. God could use evil and intend evil and bring good out of it, a greater good that wouldn't have been seen without the evil ordained. So likewise... Verse 4 is the interpretive key to Lazarus' illness. It is not, in other words, for the purpose of death, because we know he does die. But it is for the glory of God. We're going to see something about God's glory in it. And Jesus is going to use this death to, to teach something, to address a particular doubt in the disciples and in Mary and Martha. So what is that doubt? And, and we're going to draw a little bit from the text for next week as well. But basically... Jesus wants to manifest His glory to two particular groups of people. Two particular groups of people who have, at, at the core of it, a fundamental doubt. Um, two particular groups of people, one is in grief and one is in fear, but underneath the grief and fear is the same fundamental doubt. And that doubt is whether or not Jesus actually has the power over life and death. Alright, Jesus might be able to heal Jesus might be able to forgive. Jesus might be able to feed. Jesus might be able to um, cleanse us from our sins. Jesus might be able to do all these incredible, miraculous things. But surely, Jesus doesn't have the authority or the power over life and death. And that's the doubt, the fundamental doubt that drives the grief and the fear. So the first group of people that Jesus is wanting to address and manifest this glory to is Mary and Martha themselves. Mary and Martha themselves, the sisters of Lazarus. How do we know this? Well, look at verse 21. When Jesus later on um, in chapter 11 uh, goes to Mary and Martha, goes back to Judea, goes to Lazarus' home and meets the grieving sisters, Martha and Mary proclaim the same kind of um, doubt or criticism of Jesus. Look at what they say. Martha said to Jesus in verse 21, Lord, if you had been there, 
my brother would not have died. In other words, if only you would have come more sooner, if only you would have come in haste, if only you would have come just a few days earlier, this irreversible tragedy, or what they thought was an irreversible tragedy, would not have occurred. Right? And in fact, Martha and Jesus get into a little bit of a debate. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, don't you believe? What does Martha say? Well, look at what she says in verse 24. I know that he will rise again. I know that Lazarus will rise again. But not before them. Not in front of them. Look what she says in verse 24. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she was being a good Jew. She understands the Old Testament well. She believes in the resurrection. In other words, okay, Jesus, you're telling me you're the resurrection. You're telling me this man, our beloved brother, will rise again. But surely, it's not before us. Surely not in front of us. Surely not before our eyes. You mean that he'll rise again in the last day? I know that. I know the doctrine of the resurrection. You don't need to lecture me on that. And Jesus merely repeats again, he is the resurrection and the life. So whatever Martha is thinking about Jesus' authority, whatever Martha is thinking, she believes that Jesus had the power to prevent the illness to lead to death, that Jesus had the power to heal, to prevent death, but not the power over death. And surely she did not expect him to raise Lazarus up right then and there. And look at what Mary says in verse 32. Mary says the exact same words in the exact same order, exact same syntax. Look at what she says in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Two grieving sisters, same fundamental doubt. Jesus, you might have the power to heal and, and prevent this death from happening, but you didn't. Now the irreversible has occurred. Surely, surely, if anything is irreversible, if anything is completely over us, if anything that would, would overpower us, it would be death. Something absolutely unmovable, something that you can't undo, something you can't erase, something you can't reverse. Surely, Jesus does not have power over the impossible. And so that's the first group. And then grief, behind the grief, is they doubt over um, Jesus' power over life and death. Now the second group is the disciples. Look at verse 15 of chapter 11. Look at what he says there. After telling the disciples plainly that Lazarus has died, he says this, For your sake I am glad that I was not there, And the Greek is more terse, by the way. It could literally be translated, For your sake, I rejoice that I was not there so that Lazarus might die. So that you may believe, disciples. And now let us go to him. In other words, the disciples had a particular lingering doubt and if Jesus merely came in haste to heal Lazarus without first letting him die, there would be something fundamental that the disciples would be missing. And what is that? What kind of doubt would they have? What kind of fear did they have? Well, look at verse 7. 
when Jesus, uh, after he said this to the disciples, he says, let's go to Judea again. Let's go back to the place, in other words, where the Pharisees and the Jews are going to kill us or trying to kill us. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going back there? Are you going there again? We just ran away precisely from the people that were trying to stone us. Why would you lead us back to our destruction? Why would you lead us back to this precarious situation? And look at what Jesus said. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So notice what Jesus is saying here. You're fearing death? You're fearing returning? Do you walk in the night or do you walk in the light? If you have me with you, remember the Gospel of John, what is the fundamental theme of the Gospel of John? Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the one who is life himself. Jesus is the one that the darkness cannot overcome. Friends, don't be afraid of death. In other words, if Jesus is with you, even if you're amidst the people who are trying to stone you, you're in the safest possible place. Because it is God who decides when you would die. It is God who decides when you would continue to live. It is God who decides whether or not your life would evaporate. It is God who decides when your life might be taken away. So whether you're in Judea or outside of it, whether you're in the midst of treacherous enemies or with among friends, you're safest if God is with you. Why are you doubting, in other words, O disciple? Right? Why are you doubting? But the disciples were fearing. They were, def- they were what? They were fearing death. Again, doubting whether or not Jesus really had the authority over the death, over life and death. And after saying these things, he said to them, verse 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Giving us reason to why he was going to go back to Judea. So the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And now, interestingly, the, the narrator interjects. He says, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they, the disciples, thought he meant taking rest and sleep. So, Jesus is saying, I'm going to go back to Judea. Don't be afraid. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I go to awaken him. And by the way, in in first century Judaism, and we can go and survey the Old Testament texts as well, it is very common because uh, the Jews believe in the resurrection, um, Orthodox Judaism anyway, to talk about um, death in terms of falling asleep. It was very common for them to speak that way. So they know that they have a hope. That one day in the, in the resurrection, they will meet one another again. So death merely was a temporary thing until you would be reconciled with your loved ones. So Jesus is speaking um, in symbols, yes, but in a common way of talking. And the disciples immediately rationalize it by saying, Okay, Jesus, if he's just naturally sleeping, then he'll recover. Why should we risk our lives to go back to Judea, in other words, if he's just sleeping, he'll recover. You don't, he doesn't need your help. He doesn't need us to risk our lives to go back there, right? And we do this all the time when we read the Bible, by the way. And we rationalize. And the way we read the Bible reveals the doubts in our hearts, right? Um, for example, right? The Bible tells us, forgive and love your enemy. Immediately, something inside us rationalizes that text and say, well, who's really our enemy? Surely not that guy. 
Surely not that person. Surely not someone who's crushed us in this particular way. Jesus didn't mention and specify, right? Forgive anyone? 70 times 7? That's purely metaphor, I'm sure, right? Or maybe um, like the, the, the liberal theologians of the 1920th century, right? When it says Jesus has resurrected from the dead. Jesus is with us now in his spirit. They say, surely this is not a real resurrection. It just means that Jesus is, what? With us in spirit, with us in inspiration. He's a living, inspiration, inspiring teacher for all of us. And he lives in us when we follow and obey his commandments. You see, we naturalize and we rationalize clear texts of scripture. And the way we do that reveals our problem areas. And when Jesus has said, he's fallen asleep, I'm going to wake him up. And the disciple says, surely. He doesn't mean death. Surely. He can't mean he'd be raised up again. So they take it in the naturalizing way. And so Thomas's uh, doubt in verse 16 makes sense. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let us go that we may die with him. So, the disciples don't get this, right? And Jesus had just told them plainly, Lazarus actually has died. And the disciples at this point are thinking, okay, if he didn't die and he's just sleeping, what's the point of risking our lives to go there? But if he has died, then surely we're just risking our lives for nothing. So Thomas said, let us go so we'll die with him. And a commentator, a reformer, Calvin, in, in the 16th century, in his commentary on this, he says, the narrator uh, leaves it ambiguous who Thomas is talking about. Does he talk about dying with Lazarus? Or does he talk about dying with Jesus? Either way, there's a cynicism. There's a doubt there that Thomas is saying. Either way, he's saying, if Lazarus is dead, we're going to go back merely to mourn for him. We'll die with Lazarus. And surely, if, if we're just going to follow Jesus here, we'll die with Jesus. Either way, there's a stark unbelief in the disciples. They're fearful for their lives. And they're saying, Lazarus' situation is either not that bad that we should risk our lives, or now, now that they know that he's dead, surely there's no point for us to go back. Either way, there's a doubt. Grief and fear, underneath it, the doubt of whether or not God had power over life and death. Now stick with me. And that's the fundamental doubt. Let's go to our second point. About love. Oh boy, we need, we need to get this. Look at again verse 1 to 6 now. Jesus wants to manifest the glory of God to that particular doubt over them that, that, that controls their grief and fear. Look at how the narrator talks about Lazarus in verses 11 to 5. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And by the way, just as a side note, this hasn't happened yet in the Gospel of John. Mary uh, wipes Jesus' feet with ointment in the next chapter, in chapter 12. So John is assuming that his readers know the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where this event already happened. So Whoever John's audience is in the original uh, ancient times, it was already clear that they had possession of the stories of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John assumes that they know it. 
And whatever is going on here about Mary, if John is noting the fact that she is the one who wiped Jesus' feet with ointment, there's a special relationship between Jesus and this family, a special relationship between Jesus and Mary. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And notice they omit the name Lazarus. They didn't even have to name him. They merely said, the one whom you love is ill, assuming immediately that Jesus would know exactly who they were talking about. There's a special relationship between Jesus and Lazarus that they did not even have to mention his name, thinking that surely because Jesus loved him, because Jesus knew him so well and loved this family so much, surely he would know this was Lazarus and surely he would come in haste. And that's when Jesus said in verse 4, when Jesus heard it, he knew. This illness does not lead to death. He knew exactly what he was doing. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He makes sure that you know. Jesus loves Martha. Jesus loves Mary. And Jesus loves Lazarus. He makes sure you know. Why? Because of verse 6. So. Therefore. So, therefore. Because, in other words, because he loved Martha. Because he loved Mary. Because he loved Lazarus, who was ill. So. Therefore. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. If that doesn't make you tremble a little bit, I don't know what will. That little word, so, connects the love of God to him delaying his entrance to save Lazarus. That little word, so, indicates that the love of God in this particular text for Lazarus and Martha and her sister is not contradicted by him failing to heal Lazarus. That little word, so, in other words, does not merely indicate that death and divine absence and divine hiddenness doesn't negate the love of God. That little word, so, indicates sometimes the opposite. Love True, divine, Christological, Christocentric gospel love requires God to stay silent and to hide His face. By the way, friends, that doesn't negate the tragedy of the situation, right? Remember what Mary and Martha end up questioning Jesus. If only you were there. Lazarus wouldn't have died. As far as Mary and Martha and Lazarus were concerned, God never showed up. As far as Mary and Martha and Lazarus were concerned, Lazarus was clinging for his life and praying for life, and God remained far and silent. As far as they were concerned in this particular moment, for four days, Lazarus decayed, and the people mourned. 
There's nothing about this text, by the way, that glorifies death. There's just because God is in control of death, just because God is in control of suffering, death somehow becomes good. No. Death is still a tragedy. They still mourn. Do you realize when Jesus comes to heal Lazarus in front of Mary and Martha and all the neighbors who are watching? You know, he didn't come in. He didn't say, oh, wait until you see what I'm about to do. You're all mourning? Oh, watch, come closer. You're all mourning? You're all, you're all weeping? No, 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 no. You don't weep over death. No, you're a good, you're a good, you're a good Christian. You follow me. No. What do you do? He knew exactly what he was going to do. We knew four days before that he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus up from the dead. We knew that he's going to repeat that to Mar- Mary and Martha. He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus. He knew, in other words, that Lazarus wouldn't die ultimately, not finally. Yet, this is the very chapter where what? Jesus wept. You notice that? You know, if that... You notice that Jesus comes into a scene knowing precisely what he would do, knowing exactly that weeping would turn into joy, that in the midst of weeping, that they would see his power and his glory and his will manifest, and their, their, their sorrow would turn into gladness. And yet in the face of the tragedy of death, Jesus wept. Nothing should shock you out of your drunken stupor like the reality of death. You could only fool yourself for so long until death hits you in the face and the loss of a loved one crushes you, makes you realize that one day you too would have to face your own death and makes you realize that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. You know, I hear Christians sometime, uh, and I, I, I fall into this cynicism too, Christians sometimes kind of glorify death, and it could sound really spiritual, it could sound really pious, right? And we would say, you know, I just can't wait to die and be with Christ. You know, I just can't wait for death. I just can't wait for death. And, you know, they quote the verse, and sometimes properly, sometimes improperly, for me to live as Christ, but to die as gain. But friends, death is not the gain. Death is tragic. Death is not something that veils goodness. No, no, no. Death in itself is broken. We were not meant to die. Death is only something that we have to go through now. And the only way that death is gained is because through it, we are with Christ. Christ is gained. And that's why Paul could say that. But don't soften death. And so Christian joy, friends, is not a kind of naive gullibility or naive happiness that denies the sorrows of this world. Christian joy and Christian happiness does not look blindly at the tragedies of this world and and proclaim the sovereignty of God in some nonchalant, perfunctory way. No, Christian joy takes a look at the depravities and the realities of sin and the brokenness head-on with a clean conscience, clean hands, with a clean face and says, Yes, it's terrible. But God is with us. Yes, it's terrible. But God is glorified. Yes, it's terrible. But God had died the death that we should have lived. 
the death that we should have gone through. Friends, do you realize that's the gospel? You know, there's something that, this is not anywhere near my notes, but there's something about a worship service um, that, um, and I've got to be careful how to say this, there's something about a worship service that commands people to jump up and down and to just sing in glee and to just forget all your sorrows and at a moment of ecstaticness that just seems improper to me. Friends, at the center of your faith is the reality that the king of the universe died for your sin. At the center of your faith is a lamb who was slain. At the center of your faith is a God who took on your sin, the things that you deserve. At the center of your faith is a God, in other words, who died because of you. That should make you jump up and down in joy, yes, but let that never erase the tragedy of the cross. When we think about the cross as the very thing that saves us, as the most glorious thing that causes joy, let us also remember the tragedy that made it necessary. So there's a love here, friends, that, 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 that desires above all, that desires over everything else, over comfort, over life, over anything else in this world, that desires for you to see the glory of God, to be so satisfied in it, to, so, to be so involved in it, to be so absorbed in it, that everything else, not even death, nor life, nor comfort, could ever take you away from it. There's something, in other words, there's, there's a divine love that says you should prioritize other people seeing the glory of God over their comfort because they had to mourn for four days. And that might be for you years, months, decades of mourning. But there's a divine love that says it will all be worth it because through it all, you will see divine power and your joy would be complete. And this, friends, is the difference between Christian love and true Christianity and a kind of pagan virtue that counterfeits love. C.S. Lewis, I uh, mentioned this book uh, a few weeks ago, also when I preached on the blind man. C.S. Lewis talks in The Great Divorce, which is, a, um, again, a, a fictional novel about creatures and hell fictionally, again, meeting creatures in heaven, which explores the different mindsets of those who end up in hell and those who end up in heaven. And creatures in hell meet these, these creatures in heaven, and, and different perspectives are explored. And, and why it is that they ended up in this way. And there's one sobering chapter where a grieving mother meets an angel in heaven, or someone, a citizen of heaven. And this grieving mother from hell meets this angel in heaven, and she complains in Greece, and turns out before this mother had died... And again, I don't want to negate, again, death is tragic. This mother, um, her son had passed away years before um, she passed away. So she had to live through that tragedy. And um, she said to this citizen from heaven, what kind of a good God would separate the love of the mother from her son? What kind of a good God would do that? And the angel said, but don't you know that your son is with God? The son actually became a Christian before he died. He's with God. Rejoice. And the mother couldn't. The mother said, no, 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 no. 
I am down there miserable. Why? Because I am apart from my son. And he's now with God. What kind of selfish God would do that? And the angel basically said, at the end of this long conversation, there's a kind of counterfeit love that would make mothers prefer to have their sons in hell with them than to be glad that their son is with God. And ironically, if they're glad that their son is with God, they will let go of the idolatry of their children. They would end up loving their son well. And they would be with God, with their son, together. And in a twist of irony, the angel asks her, do you know of a mother-son relationship in hell that is happy and content? And in her stubbornness, and her hardness of heart, the mother said, no, but we'll be different. We're not like them. So there's a kind of love that would prefer your loved one to be with you in hell, in misery, rather than with God, in joy. Do you love people that way? Do you love people in a way that says, you will meet my needs and I will be with you forever together and nothing, not even God can separate us? Or do you love in a way that says, my commitment fundamentally is for you to know Jesus Christ, your Savior. And friends, if you feel that way, there is no middle ground between that, right? There's something about this text, something about little words so, that the love of God is motivated to stay absent so that you would see His glory, that forces us at this point to ask you ourselves the question, who is this person who would claim such a thing? Is this a love that I could embrace? Or are you repulsed by this? If this is a love that you're embracing, if, if you can sing, by the way, the words that were sung on that song, right? And the words that we will sing, all glory be to Christ, right? If nothing should our efforts stand, all our labors in vain, and you could still sing in the midst of that, all glory be to Christ. If you could sing wholeheartedly, right? That God would return. If you could sing wholeheartedly, Whatever is my lot, if you could sing wholeheartedly, no matter what happens to me, let my life be a mist. Let me be forgotten, but people might know Christ. If you, if you sang that, if you saw the words of that song, and you sing that, and you could say, yeah, I want that. Friends, the Spirit's in you. There's nothing worldly about that. There's nothing attractive about that to the world. But if you sang that kind of blindfully, and if you right now are listening to words of this text and hear that divine love sometimes requires divine absence so that you might see divine power, and you're repulsed, I pray God will reveal Himself to us. Friends, Jesus rejoiced, and let me go to my last point. Jesus rejoiced in verse 15 that He was not there so the disciples and Mary and Martha would see his power in raising Lazarus up from the dead four days later. There's another verse where he says, it is better for him to depart. Turn your Bibles to John 16, verse 7, really quickly. John 16, verse 7. There's another verse here where Jesus says, I was glad, or it is for your sake, that I would not be there. There's another verse in the text where Jesus is rejoicing that he will go away. Jesus would not be there with his disciples. And this verse, in the context of the whole 
um, farewell discourse here. He is promising them that for a time they will weep, for a time they will mourn, but their weeping will turn into joy and their mourning will turn into gladness. And this time, friends, it is not that he would be absent for the death of another. It is not that he would be gone so that you might see the power of God in the work of another. No, this time he would go in chapter 16, verse 7. What does he say? I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I will go, I will send him to you. The helper, which is the Holy Spirit, who is promised in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, and Pentecost poured out upon us, the fulfilling of God's presence with us, that God will indwell within us. There's no metaphorizing that, right? There is no making that into a mere metaphor. God could indwell us as sinners. What could allow a holy God to dwell with sinners like you and me? What could allow us to be one with God? What, in other words, could make possible that you and I will be one with the Lord? Well, Jesus this time would go away, and he would go away to his own death. He would go away to his own death, and he would go away, not this time dying and decaying for three days like Lazarus, four days, sorry, like Lazarus, but this time for three days. And they would mourn, and all hope they thought might have been lost. This time, he died. And the disciples and Mary and Martha didn't merely weep for a brother, but they wept for who they thought was a failed savior. Only to rise again. Never to die again. So that in him, you might see the foretaste of your deliverance. In him, you might have God with you, indwelling you. And in him, you can see the glory of God that reverses the irreversible that changes everything and undoes the past and cures you and makes you united to Him. Because Jesus departed to go to the cross, He could now be one with you. Let us pray. Father, we had no right and no possibility to dwell with the Holy God unless you first cleanse us through the blood of your Son, unless someone else who is perfect takes our place, gives us his righteousness, so that you might now come within us and be our light, be our comfort, be our peace, indwell us truly and fully, write your law into our hearts, sprinkle clean. And because of that and for that, Lord God, you departed away from us to the cross. Let us now think and, and savor this glory. Sing with joy. All glory be to Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Gray, for the faithful preaching of God's word. May his eternal truths be marked in our hearts forever. Friends, I remember a pastor saying, <coughs> um, Christ has come and he has drank the full cup of God's wrath. 